0: Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having conversations with the brightest and best minds I can find to help inspire all of us to make amazing products, amazing product teams, and amazing product companies. If you like the sound of that sales pitch, why not head over to onenightinproduct.com, where you can sign up to the newsletter, check out some of my other episodes with thought leaders and practitioners, and find the podcast on your favorite podcast app so you can make sure you never miss another episode again. Oh, and make sure you tell your friends too. On tonight's episode, we talk all about how to take your product positioning and translate it into a winning sales pitch. Moving beyond a disconnected set of capabilities and list of features to answering the real questions your prospects care about. Why is your product better than all the others? Who are the others, for that matter? And how can we diffuse the obvious objections before they even come up? For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is April Dunford. Yes, she's back. April's a world-renowned author and the queen of positioning, who's also my most unexpected shava buddy and someone who personally contributed to getting me so hungover for a conference that I fell asleep in the audience the next day. (laughs) She's here tonight, though, to help us take the headache out of crafting a winning sales pitch and giving your competitors a run for their money with her new book, coincidentally called Sales Pitch, How to Craft a Story to Stand Out and Win. Hi, April. How are you doing tonight?
1: Oh, I'm doing pretty good. We didn't get that drunk. Was it? Was it really that bad? We were like, I don't remember. I don't. I gotta. I gotta. <laughs> I, gotta I gotta think back. How bad was it? <laughs> if,
0: you, if you don't remember April, we probably were that drunk. But uh, it was definitely an interesting event. But I've got to take responsibility for my own poor life choices as well. So. uh I'm not really going to pin that one on you.
1: Yeah, I feel like maybe I I ended earlier than you and so <laughs> therefore cannot be blamed for whatever happened after I sensibly went to bed.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Well, I'll find someone <laughs> else to blame. <laughs> but anyway, first things first. Normally, I'd sit here or stand here, ask you who you are and what you're up to, but we all know who you are. You've been on all these other podcasts. Everyone knows who you are. You're the queen of positioning has said in the intro you've been on this podcast before everyone knows what you're up to so i'll ask instead how's the book launch going
1: oh book launch is going pretty good like it's been it's been good like books are a giant pain in the neck right like it it takes really long time (laughs) to produce a book like writing the book is actually not all that bad but you know getting a book produced takes about a year And so then, you know, and then all of a sudden it's out. And so, you know, you got to run around and promote the thing and you cross your fingers and hope that everybody thinks it's as cool as you think it is. And, you know, in that year of producing the book, you get so darn close to it. Like you don't even know whether it's any good or not. And so (laughs) anyway, book launch is going great. I've done a lot of conference talks and a lot of podcasts and a lot of live events and virtual events and things like that. But yeah, so it's been fun. And book seems to be doing okay. So I'm feeling good about the book launch so far.
0: Oh, there you go. No metaverse events yet, though, from the looks of it.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> no, not yet. Well, I mean, like, I don't know what you what constitutes a metaverse event, but I've done, I have done a bunch of virtual events, but nothing where, like, you know, I think of a metaverse event, I've got, like, a cartoon avatar or some shit. Yeah, like that's that.
0: the sort, yeah. No cartoon apples yet. Far,
1: I haven't done any of that. <laughs> Come on, Epic Games, put me in. <laughs>
0: But one thing you mentioned after the last book was how stupid an idea it was to agree to do the audio book narration for Obviously Awesome. Mm. Now, I was going to ask you yeah, if you were going to skip that this time. but we were Have talking... I learned
1: from my mistakes? No, oh, yeah, but we, I have not.
0: We talked just before this and you said that you're about to start recording it straight after this call. So <laughs> yeah. why didn't you get like an AI April to do the job for you?
1: Oh, well, you know, I think the I think the obvious alternative is you get some kind of a voice actor or something to do it, but I don't know. You know, the I got a lot of feedback on the last one that people really enjoyed having me read it. Uh, particularly people that have been following along with me on podcasts or in conference talks or whatever. And so there was an expectation that I would read it. And then, you know, it's a bit like running a marathon, you know, right at the end, you're like, okay, never again am I going to do that. That's terrible. (laughs) And then, you know, six months or a year later, you're like, hey, that was really fun. I think I'd do another one, you know, so I'm in that zone. But yeah, I'm going to read it again this time. I don't know why. (laughs) It's a bad idea, but it's too late to turn back now.
0: Well, just if it makes you feel any better, I do have one friend who put a book out and they got it done by a, well, they got the intro done by a professional voice actor, and they kept screwing up the names and they had to kind of correct them at the last minute. So at least if you're there, you can screw it up on your own merits, right?
1: Well, yeah. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So that, that sort of thing would drive me crazy. So yeah, at least if it's, if it's bad, I got nobody to blame except myself.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I did notice one big bit of news in the book. Now, I'm thinking back to our last chat and the book, Obviously Awesome Itself, where we talked about the status quo and how Joey the intern was the de facto alternative for every software product sale out there. But I see in this book that Joey has got a promotion to Director (laughs) of Finance Operations. (laughs) So I do have to ask
1: pick on that name I like it just pops into my head if i'm gonna have you know the random person <laughs> it happens to be joey like there isn't a joey in my life but yeah you're right you're right i, I am talking about joey as
0: joey's been promoted so
1: he's in the finance department now
0: <laughs> he is yeah so have you solved positioning so completely that poor old joey had to go and get a different job
1: yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Nobody's going to get this reference.
0: <laughs> it's fine. This is this is here for for you, me, and the three fans that listened to the previous podcast that we did.
1: I know somebody else called me out for always picking on somebody named Joey. Like, let me, <laughs> but, but anyways, yeah, Joey.
0: Well, I'm happy for him anyway. You know, it's good that he's got the respect that he deserves. But let's talk about Sales Pitch then. Your brand spanking new book. The sequel's obviously awesome. Now, obviously awesome, promised to help us. Nail positioning so customers get it, buy it, and love it, but you're back with a new book specifically about buying it, yeah, so I know that you've been doing a load of these, but just one more for the road, time for your own sales pitch. Why should people buy the book, and for that matter, who should be buying it
1: yeah so so here's here's where the idea came from so the the first book was my attempt to create kind of a step by step process. That you could use to actually do positioning. There was a lot of stuff written about what positioning is and why it's important and all the rest of it. But I was very frustrated as a marketer that when I sat down to actually do it, there, you know, nobody could give me the steps. Like, how do I sit down and do it? So that's what Obviously Awesome was about. At the end of Obviously Awesome, I talk about how, you know, if we want to test positioning, the best way to do that is to take the positioning, translate it into a sales pitch, and then test it on, you know. Live qualified prospects and see how it lands in a sales situation. And I kind of had this idea that, you know, people have their own sales pitch structure that they like to use. I don't have to teach anybody how to do that. You know, you could just take whatever structure you have, map the positioning in there, and use that. But then as I'm working with clients, I'm realizing that that is actually super rare, like almost no clients of mine had a sales pitch structure that they were using that had any real thought put behind it. In fact, for the most part, it was really interesting to see that most companies were doing what I would call a a product walkthrough. Like they weren't attempting to do any positioning at all on the sales side, which when you think about it is bonkers because like over on the marketing side, here we are freaking out about exactly how we say everything and how we position everything. And we're all stressed out about that. And then the minute a customer hits a sales conversation. You know, they're like, okay, there's 57 drop down menus, and I'm going to click through every (laughs) single one, and there's going to be no attempt to position any of this stuff at all. So, much like on the positioning side of it, where I had a methodology that I had been using, you know, back when I was a vice president of marketing. And so I thought, well, maybe I could teach other people how to do that. On the sales pitch side of things, I had a sales pitch structure that I had used internally back when I was a vice president of marketing. So, whenever I was doing work with a client and we got done the positioning piece, it'd be like, okay, well, let's build the sales pitch that reflects that. And I'd say, look, like we can use whatever structure you want. You know, how about your structure? Do you have one that you like? And everybody would say, no, actually we hate our sales pitch structure. We don't know where it came from, you know, whatever. We're just doing a product walkthrough. (laughs) So I'd say, okay, well, we'll just use mine because we need one to use. So eventually I got the idea. Well, you know, I keep Teaching this to people, I might as well just write it down in a book because I was always getting questions about it. Well, how should we be doing that and how should it work and whatever? And so that's what the book is about. Much like the first book was a way to actually do positioning. The second book is, okay, if you're gonna build a sales pitch, I think a sales pitch is composed of eight pieces and this is what they are, and this is how the pieces of positioning map into that.
0: But you start the book saying that the world is full of great books about selling. It is. But they don't really dig into the sales pitch that much. And this reminds me of the story, which you've kind of just touched on just now, about how you started focusing on positioning in the first place, which is another kind of unloved, template-driven, Mad Libs-style activity that no one really paid enough attention to. Yeah. So do you consider yourself somewhat the savior of the of all the unloved, messy parts of go-to-market that no one has a good answer <laughs> for?
1: <laughs> no, man. <laughs> <laughs> No, y'all need to save yourselves. No, I just think, I think there are some things that we just do and we don't really think about it that are actually kind of super fundamental and important. And for some reason, people just haven't talked about them. Like the sales pitch one is really interesting. Like one thing I think is interesting is that if you go to companies and say, show me your sales pitch, you know, and, and they'll show it to you. And usually it's a product walkthrough with maybe a couple of slides at the beginning, a couple slides at the end and you'll say where did this come from? And nobody knows. Like it's been there <laughs> since the year of the flood. <laughs> like no one knows. And every time a new you know, a new release comes out, somebody adds something to it or they might twizzle something, but nobody has ever built a sales pitch from scratch that anyone can remember. Like it's just there. And then if you say, well, if we were to build a new sales pitch, who's responsible for that? And that's a that's an interesting one because the marketing folks will say, well, you know, we build stuff for the sales team occasionally, but we just throw it over the fence and then they just ignore it (laughs) and do whatever they feel like. (laughs) And then you go on the sales side and they'll say, well, you know, we, we just kind of pull together whatever we need or we'll do whatever, or, you know, we've just been doing this because that's the thing that we have. And that's what it is. So they don't think they're responsible for creating it either. And so if you go and read the literature in sales or you look at the stuff that salespeople are trained with, you know, like the the popular sales methodologies that people learn, like Sandler Selling or any of these things, they're teaching salespeople fundamental sales skills like negotiation skills and, you know, how to build rapport with a client, how to handle objections, how to move a deal along, uh, how to negotiate pricing. All these things are super, super important sales skills, but there's kind of this assumption that a pitch just exists, (laughs) like it's just magically there. (laughs) And you're like, don't you think it's kind of important what we actually say (laughs) when we get in this thing? I think it's important. So I don't know. I don't know why we don't have an accepted sales pitch methodology, but we don't. Like, like I'll tell you one more thing. Is really surprising to me. I'm writing this book, so the last book. I wanted to call the last book Positioning because it's a book about positioning, but I couldn't because there was already a famous book called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind by Reason Trout. So I had to call it something else. So for this one, I'm talking to my book people and they're like, okay, have you got a title yet? And I said, well, if it was up to me, I'd just call it Sales Pitch. But there's probably already some book out there that's called that. So we can't call it that. But I went on Amazon and I searched it and there's no book
0: (laughs) called Sales
1: Pitch. And I was like, all right, so I'm going to be the person that has the book called Sales Pitch. And 10 years from now, somebody like me is going to say, oh, darn it, I want to call this thing Sales Pitch, but I can't. Because that woman, (laughs) April Dunford, did it back in 2023.
0: Uh, Caution of detail to all future authors. But speaking of authors, I've spoken to people like Matt Dixon before. I know you had him on your podcast as well, co-author of The Challenger Sale.
1: Oh, he's so great.
0: Yeah, he's a great guy. One of my favorite books as well, The Challenger Sale, about selling. And seems like a bit more of a thoughtful book about sales and rather than the old stereotype of, you know, old girl from The Simpsons who's kind of sitting there chain-smoking, desperately trying to win the next deal through whatever means possible. And I asked Matt if he gets any pushback from those kinds of traditional thinking, kind of alpha male, Glengarry, Gary, Glenn Ross type, sellers that there are out there about, you know, why are you telling us to do this stuff? We've been selling for years. We know how to do all this stuff. But now you're on their lawn as well. So did you get any pushback from any, or have you had any pushback from any salespeople that are like, ah, you know, we know how to do this stuff. Don't tell us what to do. What do you think that salespeople are kind of eager and keen for some help in this area?
1: So I got to be honest with you. Like I expected that. So I expected in my clients where I would come out with this structure and say, Hey, we're going to do the pitch like this. What do you think? And I expected to get a lot of pushback from vice presidents of sales saying, well, no, we don't, we don't like pitching like that. And that's not how we do it here. And we pitch a different way. And I've honestly experienced none. And and in fact, the most common thing that i get is this great sense of relief where the, the the vice president of sales is like finally we have a pitch that makes some sense here <laughs> <laughs> i think that the sales teams get very attached to how they do certain things like you know i don't think you could come in and from outside of sales and try to tell sales people how to do proper discovery for example or or maybe how to do negotiation again all of these things that they've learned in training but i think in general sales teams are very frustrated with the state of the pitch that they're given to work with and they don't actually see the meat of what they're doing in selling or something you know is is kind of like what happens around the pitch in some ways even though the pitch literally is the story we're talking about in the conversation it's it's interesting to me but i've had almost no pushback in the clients that I've worked with that have come and said, no, 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 we don't do that here. That surprised me.
0: So it's almost like they don't see it as being their responsibility in some sense. This is just an artifact that they're given. This is just another marketing thing that they just have to work with. Do you think that's a fair kind of summary of their attitude?
1: Well, in general, the work that I'm doing is we work through the positioning first, and then we take the positioning and translate it to a sales pitch. And so There's a lot of complaining about the typical sales pitch that sales will get from a marketing team that hasn't done that positioning work with their input. And it'll generally be, you know, you're giving us this story, but it doesn't make any sense. Or they'll disagree (laughs) with the differentiated value that's communicated in the story and say, well, that's not how we win. Like, that's actually not the important thing. And, you know, and I know because I'm dealing with customers all day, every day. And so I understand that. I think the thing that the sales folks that I've worked with so far think is kind of exciting about the structure that I'm giving them is it gives them a way to position all of the competition and typically what the kinds of pitches they would get for marketing would really shy away from talking about other alternative ways of solving the problem or anything even close to that. Which by the way is a great place to do discovery. And so again, most marketing sales pitches kind of ignore that discovery needs to happen or, you know, I think a lot of marketers don't really understand what discovery is. So they just assume that it happened somewhere else or maybe doesn't need (laughs) to happen. I don't know what. And then I think that in general, marketing, when marketing produces a sales pitch, there's way too much upfront stuff and not enough getting to the meat of what a customer wants to talk about. So in my sales pitch structure, there's a setup and a follow through. But the idea behind the setup is it should be very short, and we should be able to cover that quite quickly, and then move the sales pitch along to the meat, which is our differentiated value and how we actually get that done.
0: No, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting because you've kind of touched a little bit already on maybe some of the kind of characteristics of a not so good sales pitch. Like you say, almost like just a walkthrough of the entire product, just with a couple of slides at the front and the back. I know there's also just the very standard idea of just like a list of features one after another with just loads of slides about the company, like marketing slides at the front, like you say, like, yeah. this is why we're amazing and spend 15, 20 slides talking about that, then just loads of screenshots talking about every single little feature. And I think the feature thing's interesting though, because certainly when you're selling to bigger customers or bigger prospects, there do seem to be some prospects out there that kind of just really want a big old list of features that they can maybe tick off, especially if you're, I don't know, going against corporate procurement or something like that, where they just, you know, they've just, they got God knows how many suppliers, they just want to thin the herd by getting rid of anyone that doesn't have a particular feature X or particular feature Y. So is that a problem that needs to be solved by a sales pitch? Like, is there any room for big old lists of features in a sales pitch? Or is that like some other document that you produce and just send to the procurement team at the right time?
1: Yeah, in my in my opinion, like the big old list of features. If you're dealing with procurement, like procurement happens way down the line. Like even by the time we hit procurement, like we are in the hunt. Like we've basically got this deal. I'm more concerned with what happens to actually get us in the hunt and not get us immediately eliminated from the short list, <laughs> which is where <laughs> I think the story really, really matters. And. Throwing a thousand million features at a prospect that is in the early stages of trying to figure out who should be on my short list, who should I pay more attention to, who should I actually move forward with, like the features are the least interesting thing. What customers really want to understand is why should I pick you over the other guys? Like, what can you do for my business that the other folks can't do? And it is impossible to answer that question without addressing well, what do the other guys do? Like, how is my approach different than what the approach of the other competitors in the market or the approach that the customer has happened to be taking right now? And so I think a good sales pitch kind of sets up our differentiated value with a bit of context that says, you know what? Like, we have a point of view on this market. And our point of view is for companies like you, here's some stuff that you really got to pay attention to. And if you look at the way other folks approach this problem... We can sort of bucket those approaches this way, and here's the pluses and minuses, but there's a gap, and we're here to fill that gap. Now let me show you what we do. And so what I think most companies do is they come in, and the assumption is that the customer is going to do all the work. So the customer is going to understand what the features are, and it's going to be able to translate those features to value, and the customer is going to understand what's differentiating, like what features do you have that the other folks don't have? And we just sort of come in and be like, just the facts, Jack, Ben." Like, where do, you know, I'm just going to show you all this stuff. <laughs> and then it's your job to go figure it out, customer. And I just think that's wrong. That's not what customers actually want.
0: So would you say then, like this whole point about the list of features being way down the line, which obviously is true for the most part, would you say then the whole concept of actually demoing the product itself like actually showing doing a live demo or maybe a recorded demo if you're not feeling too brave Mm. but going doing like a live demo with a prospect is again something else that goes way down the line because at some point no someone needs to see the product right
1: oh yeah no well uh, you know it depends on your product like some products are really demoable and some aren't right and some really aren't (laughs) yeah like i spent a lot of time in the database space doing a database demo is kind of pointless (laughs) but If you do have a product that is demoable, then usually a demo is one of the things that you really want to do in a first call. The mistake is just treating all the features as equal and never talking about the value that the features deliver. So I think a really good product demo, if we want to do one in a first sales call, first, it needs to be organized around your differentiated value. So you need to be able to come in and say, look, we are the only solution on the planet that can enable your business to do this, this, and this value. Now, let me show you how we do that. And so the features should actually be organized that way. So we're going to say, look, we're going to enable you to do twice as much in half the time. Here's how we do it. And let me show you the demo of that. And we're the only ones that can do this thing, XYZ. Here's how we do it. And so we're leaving the customer with, The answer to the question, why pick us over the other guys, instead of just showing them every single feature, like they're all equal, the table stakes things are exactly the same as the things that are super differentiated, and not really getting at why do the features actually matter?
0: Yeah, so there's a very, may I say it, sort of jobs to be done approach there, right? So you're sitting there saying, what are the things that the customer or the prospect needs to achieve? But I think you also hit one of the nails on the head just now with the idea that some products are really demoable and some really aren't. And I've worked in companies where, for example, we've been selling B2B enterprise APIs that just, you know, the people that are buying them have no real idea even what an API is. And they're just... Yeah, you have salespeople walking in there trying to show them like pages of JSON text and stuff like that. like Totally. Are there some ways that you've seen, maybe going back to your database days, where you can start to demonstrate the value in some way that doesn't require the person who's the economic buyer or the champion, to actually have any real technical knowledge at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, quite often we have that. Uh, quite often we're selling a solution to a person very high up in the organization that doesn't actually care about how anything gets done. <laughs> what they is they don't care about what's, you know, your AI thing or whatever it is in the guts of of the machine. What they really want to know is, what's it mean for my business? So tell me what happens at the end of this. So we implement your thing and like, what's going to happen? Does revenue go up or does it go down? (laughs) I need to know, like, (laughs) what's the impact on my overall cost base? You know, is this going to reduce risk for my company in some way? And so often we're selling at a very, very, like a C-level buyer doesn't actually care about the answer to the question, well, how do we get this done? Now, there may be another person on the deal team that cares a lot about that. But if the champion in the deal doesn't care, we can't get a deal cooking without appealing to whatever it is that that champion finds valuable. And then when we get down to technical due diligence, what we're really doing there at that point is objection handling. Like IT comes up and says, well, hang on, it's got to be SOC too compliant or we can't get it. <laughs> okay, dude, here's my paperwork on that. Or, we got to make sure that the APIs do X, Y, Z and it fits into our stack and whatever. Yep. No problem. But that's objection handling. It's not value. And so when we're selling big enterprise software at a really high level, often we're not doing a demo at all, or we might be talking about some of the how we get it done, but we'd be doing it at a level that isn't to speeds and feeds. Like it would, it would be more like, like, look, you know, if I make a claim and say, we're the only company on the planet that can do XYZ. I got to back that up with something. And so I might say, look, you know, the reason we can do this and no one else can is we have a patented way of doing it and it does X, Y, Z, everybody else does A, B, C. And when they do it that way, it takes three times as long to do it. And so, <laughs> you know, we can come and dispute the veracity of those claims later. But, you know, often I don't have to show you the code. <laughs> to prove that the thing works. And we'll have some other way of proving whether or not it can deliver what we say we can deliver in terms of customer references or case studies, or we're going to do an on-site proof of concept. Or There's all kinds of other ways that we can prove that we can deliver what we say we can deliver without actually showing you the feature in action in a demo.
0: It reminds me of something that a CRO that I was working with once when we were working on a kind of a GTM relaunch. Her point was basically the thing that she was trying to do with the sort of the relaunch go-to-market plan was not so much to even demo the product or even talk about the product at all. It was really just to give our potential customers the kind of the sense that we've got you. You We know where we're going. We're going where you want to go, and we've got your back. Right. And you're safe with us. Do you think that's a fair approach to take in sort of these high-level sales pitch conversations?
1: Well, you know, It is and it isn't. I mean, doing that isn't always differentiating. Like, if, you know, if there's three people on the short list and you all come in and say, Oh, we got you.
0: They've all got you back.
1: No, us too. We got you too, man. (laughs) Again, the key thing we're trying to answer in a first substantive sales call is how are we different than everyone else? And the best way to answer that is to come in and have a conversation about your point of view on the market. Like, it's kind of the answer to the question, like, why did we build our thing this way, right? So we we built our thing this way because we look at the market in a different way. We looked at the existing things out here and we thought, you know what? Those things are crap. They're doing it wrong. We're, we could do this better. <laughs> but it's not always <laughs> obvious in a first sales pitch, like, Why you're better? Or, you know, where did that come from? What is your point of view? How are you different than everyone else? And so I think we really need to nail that in a first sales pitch so that a customer can lean back and say, does that resonate with me? Like, do I agree with that point of view on the world? And if I do, maybe I should work with those folks and at least keep me in the hunt. We can get in, you know, if it's a big enterprise deal, you know, we're not closing in in one sales call anyway. We're going to have 59 more sales calls and there's lots of (laughs) times to talk about the gory details of everything. But I think in a first substantive sales call, we really need to get in there and say, look, we look at the market like this. We look at the other approaches like this. There's good and bad in those. But for a customer like you, we think a great solution has to tick these boxes. Are you with me or not? (laughs) We should be having those conversations, I think, in a good sales call.
0: But it's interesting because one of the things you just touched on there was this idea that we built the product in a certain way because you know we had an opinion, we had a plan. But I don't think it's unfair to say that there are some companies out there that kind of just took it deal by deal. Yeah. They didn't really, you know where this is going. They took it deal by deal. They didn't have a plan per se. They just kind of, whatever was in front of them, whatever revenue opportunities they went after. They kind of went after all of those. They ended up with a fairly disconnected set of customers that they've ended up selling to, and they don't really then end up really having an ICP or a kind of a target segment at all. And their view of the market, which I know that you're very strong on, you've talked about it in this interview as well, the idea that you need to nail your market, but their market's kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. So how easy is it to craft a sales pitch that speaks to such a disorganized group of customers or do you have to have multiple or do you just have to go back and choose one?
1: Well, so here's the thing. Like we can't build a sales pitch from nothing. Like we don't, we, you know, we don't get to just make this stuff up. So where it comes from is our positioning. And so part of getting tight on your positioning is defining here's what we compete with. This is how we're different. This is the value that we can deliver that no one else can. Therefore, these are the kind of customers that are really going to love our stuff. Therefore, this is the market we're going to go in. If we can define that then we could build a really good sales pitch around it it's as easy as that even if we didn't start out with a defined point of view because you know what we did a bunch of pivots you know we thought we were this changed and then we were this this happens to a lot of companies we can still reverse engineer a point of view from our differentiated value now if you got a product in market and it's essentially failing i can't help you
0: <laughs> 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 like, 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 that's book 3 right that's book 3
1: if you have a product that Like, doesn't sell that it, you know, like good positioning is only possible when we actually have some differentiated value to grab onto. So, you know, you may have sold a handful of deals out of just pure brute force salesmanship, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a great product. So, sometimes companies will come to me in their really, really early stage. So, they sold a handful of deals, none of the deals have any commonality. And they're just simply too early for us to tighten up the positioning because we don't know where to tighten it up. And so my advice to those companies is you just got to get out there and sell some more deals. I know it's going to be hard, but you got to get out and close some more business until we figure out who do we compete with? How are we different? What's the value we can deliver that no one else can? If we don't know the answer to those questions, I can't build a sales pitch. I can't, you know, we, we don't have the answers we need to actually do good type positioning that we would need as an input into the sales pitch. So this isn't about how do I build a great product? (laughs) This assumes that you have a product, it's in market, you're winning deals today. And how do we do the best possible job of communicating why a certain type of customer should pick us?
0: Well, the why they should pick us kind of goes back then to something you mentioned earlier, and obviously mentioned in the book as well, this idea that you want to kind of call out the opposition, so to speak, so that yeah, you've got this point of view on the market, you know who your competitors are, your prospects know who the competitors are, and rather than hiding from that or pretending that you don't have any competitors, you kind of call it out up front and explain why you're better, why you're the solution. But I can think of some sales and leadership teams that I've worked with in the past that will be terrified to acknowledge that they have any competition in front of a potential client. So why do you think it's so important for them to get over that fear and embrace the competitive landscape rather than being frightened of it?
1: Well, because your your customers are looking at the competitors. And so your customers are coming in with a short list. I mean, assuming this is true, like in some markets, maybe, maybe <laughs> it isn't competitive. And maybe the only thing you're competing against is status quo. In which case, you should talk about how you're different than the status quo. But in a lot of cases, we've got a short list of competitors. Maybe there's one big gorilla in the market that everybody always shortlists. Like it would seem crazy to kind of go in and just say, oh, well, we're, we're going to pretend that there's no one else in the market and we're just going to talk about ourselves. What it does is it leaves you open to the competitors positioning you. So the competitors will say, well, who are you talking to? And they'll say, "Oh, well, we we're talking to these guys. Oh, yeah, those guys, they're terrible. Let me give you the <laughs> list of reasons why you should not go with them. Here's the things. And But you're too scared to talk about anybody else, so you don't even get to defend yourself <laughs> against that. So I think we need to kind of acknowledge the reality that, you know, the customer is coming in and they're looking for answers. If you look at the data on this, the data is really interesting. So um, there's a neat study that was done a couple of years back, and they were looking at B2B enterprise software buyers. And they went and they asked them, what do you want? In a sales conversation, and the top two answers were, well, the first one was they wanted help navigating alternatives, and the second one was they wanted perspectives on the market. Like that's not about you. That's about you in relation to everyone else. So, in order to get picked, you know, you got to answer the question, "Why pick me over the other guys?" That's really hard to answer if you don't acknowledge that there are other ways to solve the problem. Now one of the things that people are really afraid of is they don't want to be seen as bashing the competition. And in the sales pitch structure that I use, generally, we're not calling the competitors out by name. Like often what we're doing is we're clumping the competitors into groups by their approach to the job or their approach to the problem. And then we kind of contrast ourselves with that. So we're saying, look, like, There's a set of competitors out there and what they do is kind of like content management. And there's another set of competitors and what they do is a little bit more like learning management. And here's the pluses and minuses of trying to solve this problem with a content management system or a learning management system. And So I don't necessarily have to always name the competitor. And in fact, I don't think it's a good idea to name them unless you're absolutely sure that the customer is looking at that competitor. But I think it is very easy to paint a picture of the market and say, look, There's some competitors out there take this approach. There's other that take this approach and other folks take this approach. And let's talk about the pluses and minuses of each of those and come to our own conclusions about what's good and bad and what should a perfect solution actually do.
0: Absolutely. But down the arrow slightly in your process, you move into the more of the solution space. And one of the things, again, if we're talking about fear, you talk about making sure that you handle objections in that solution phase. So you're starting to specifically call out things that people might object to as part of the sales process yeah, and kind of lancing the boil, so to speak, so that you can kind of just get that all out on the table and then move on. But again, I can imagine that not everyone's going to be particularly confident or comfortable about doing that. So I guess, again, the question would be, how can people embrace the fear of almost pre-objecting to stuff and kind of just getting all that stuff out on the table?
1: Yeah, you know, this, this is one that I think, uh, you know, good mature sales reps do a really good job of this already, which is recognizing that there's common objections that we have a really good answer to. And those objections may not actually get vocalized in the sales pitch itself. And so we might as well just get ahead of it. So often those objections are to do with things like how difficult is this thing to deploy? And what's the change management like? And you know, this all sounds great, but it sounds like a lot of work, <laughs> you know, or or the objections are around pricing. We don't always want to talk about pricing in a first sales call. But if we think that there's an objection where the customer might leave the meeting and say, well, all that sounds great, but I hear they're way too expensive and I don't think they're going to fit in the budget. Therefore, we're not going to do the next call it would behoove you to sort of, you know, give them at least an idea of what, here's what the range is and don't worry, we got you and we're flexible on the pricing and please don't disqualify us because you think you have an objection around that that you were just too scared to ask about. So <laughs> I think good sales reps are actually really good at this. Again, I think marketers, if they're building a deck, they wouldn't necessarily put a spot in the sales pitch deck to have the reps do that in a very systematic way. But I think a good sales pitch would have that and good sales reps are doing it already.
0: Oh, absolutely. And long may it continue. So again, it's a super practical book, a step-by-step process, market side, insights, alternatives, perfect world, solution side, introduction, value, proof, objections and ask. See, I've got it all down there, not written down at all. Wow. (laughs) Obviously written down. But, But where and how in that process can the product management team get involved in the process and help support the sales and marketing teams? Like, Are there any particular areas where you think, the product management team can insert themselves into the sales pitch production process and really help to drive it home.
1: Yeah, so absolutely. So there's a there's a handful of places where I think product management's input is essential. So before we can do a good sales pitch, we've got to go get really tight on our positioning. Often what we have, in particularly in tech products, is we'll have some really amazing technological features that the sales team Frankly doesn't really understand and therefore doesn't pitch and therefore don't necessarily get used by customers because the customers don't even know these things are there. So often what we'll have is when we're working through the positioning process and we get to the conversation around differentiated capabilities and then what those, how those capabilities translate into value. That's often where we get really good input from the product team who really understands what we have they understand the competitive landscape, they understand what's differentiating and what isn't. And then, you know, as a team, we understand what's valuable to prospects. So we don't get to good differentiated value without good input from the product team. So that's the first thing. And then when we get to building the sales pitch, you know, we have this setup phase in the sales pitch where we're talking about the entire market. I think the product team that's doing a really good job of competitive analysis has a lot to say about the pros and cons of the alternative approaches and how we might bucket those. I also think in the back end of the sales pitch where we're talking about differentiated value and how we do what we say we can do, I think the product team is where we get that expertise to be able to describe how we do what we do to the right level of detail for the buyers that we're talking to.
0: Well, I will bring all of that stuff up in the next product management team meeting and hopefully, yeah, for all of the product managers around the world, and hopefully they'll all put their back into it and help get those sales pitches across the line. But where can my listeners find you after this if they want to find out more about positioning, crafting a killer sales pitch, or keep up to date with the ongoing adventures of Joey, the former intern?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a handful of things. So I too have a podcast. It's called Positioning with heard. April Dunford. And, uh, I'm on about episode 20 or something, not the nine million episodes like you, but, <laughs> but if every single episode, I'm kind of doing a deep dive on a particular aspect of positioning. So if you really want to geek out on this stuff, that'd be a place to go. I'm also writing a newsletter these days. This is a bit of an experiment because, you know, if you had asked me a year ago, I would give you a big rant about how much I hate newsletters, <laughs> but I'm, experimenting with a newsletter and so if you go to slash books you can sign up there and then as far as social media goes i'm not really active anywhere except linkedin these days so if you want to just you know do the low effort follow me on linkedin you can do that there
0: <laughs> there you go well as ever i'll make sure to link that all into the show notes even the competitor podcast. Along with,
1: it's not competitive, man. Uh, <laughs> it's right. complimentary. Complimentary,
0: complimentary, exactly. Uh, alongside links to both your books, hopefully your sales pitch will have worked, and a few people will come along and pick it up. Well, as ever, it's been a pleasure to chat. I'll be chewing a book on from the sidelines. Obviously, we'll keep in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. All right. Well, thanks again for having me. This has been fun as always. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to The list, or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.